Welcome to our first episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast in 2021. I'm Corey Lumberg from Autos Performance. And to kick off the year, Cam and I are joined by Mark Leishman. Mark is a five-time PGA Tour winner, four-time President's Cup player, and currently ranked number 28 in the world. And as always, he offers a, a ton for us to learn from. He's established in his career. He knows really, really well what works for him. And it's fascinating to hear him talk through what his process is. He's a real shot maker. He plays with a lot of artistry, so cool to hear him describe his strategy for attacking the golf course in great detail. Also some cool insights into how he manages his schedule, the important role of his caddy, and some specific training tasks to use to prep each week and much more. So please enjoy the chat. And if you still haven't gotten a total golf trainer, not sure what you're waiting on. We use it every day, continue to find new inventive ways to solve a variety of problems that we encounter on the lesson tee. It is by far the most versatile training aid on the market and we love it. It can be used in all aspects of the game, full swing, putting, short game, and you can customize how you use it in your swing to receive feedback on whatever technical cue you wish to monitor. We appreciate their support and are happy to send you to support them in a product that we believe in. Go to TotalGolfTrainer.com and use the promo code EARNYOUREDGE for a discount. But now, please enjoy episode 78 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Mark Leishman. In doing some research for the podcast, Mark, I was excited to learn your favorite AFL team is Richmond. It's not my favorite AFL team. Mine's North Melbourne. And (laughs) um, you've had great success over the last four years, winning three of the four premierships. So congrats on on that, your team's success. My dad actually, in 1972-73, moved from Wangaratta down to Melbourne to play for North Melbourne and came up against... The fleet in oh yeah, uh, yeah. Dale Waitman, yeah. Dale Waitman, right. I so, used to wear his number. I used to wear number four. Did you wear that when you were playing, or did you just wear oh, that no, as a fan of the game? I had his football jumper. Yeah, and Dale Waitman is the reason my dad stopped playing football after about a year. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> it, it, would, it would cover him in the pocket, or it would cover him when he was playing the wing or the center, and and just yeah. realized he was a much better footballer. So yeah, yeah I, right. I, I, I like that connection there. So. There's a lot of similarities. You know, I'm not a country kid, but my family's from the country in Northeast Victoria and you're in the, uh, in the Southwest there in Warrnambool. But a good place we typically start these conversations is an understanding of your upbringing in a, in a, in a town of, what, 30,000 people. So um, kind of from zero, to if your chapter of life first was from zero to 10, can you tell us what it was like growing up in Warrnambool? Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty awesome place, to be honest. When we were growing up, we thought it had everything. It didn't. <laughs> we thought, why would you want to live anywhere else apart from Warnable? We had the beach. We had a lot of really crappy weather. So it's actually known as Windy Warnable because it's always blowing, I mean, probably want to say at least 30 kilometers an hour, which is, you know, 20 miles an hour. But yeah, I grew up playing every sport. My dad was a bricklayer and mum was a nurse. So working class family. You know, after school, I was always outside took up golf when, you know, I always played golf just in the backyard, you know, chipping and putting and whatever, but never re- really went to the golf course until I was about eight. was too busy playing football or cricket or at the beach or just doing whatever, you know, riding bikes with your mates. So I was a pretty, uh, very sporty kid, yeah, athletic kid and just grew a love for golf when I was, you know, about eight years old and took off from there. Didn't get my first coach until I was uh, about 10 years old. And that was sort of one lesson every couple of months. A member of the golf club. What's that? Sorry. Was that that locally? Yeah, that was locally. There was a member at the golf club. We couldn't afford to to do any lessons, but there was a member at the golf club that said, you know, this this kid's got a bit of talent to my dad. And he's like, you know, I want to pay for a lesson so he can get the basics down and help me out with that. So he'd, he'd pay for a lesson every couple of months. I started, I had a big slice 
My first coach was George Campbell, who's now in uh, in Perth, Australia. He got me to hit a, a draw, so I started hitting a, a big um, sort of out to win. I was, I was in to out, and then he got me out to in, so I picked up 30, 40 yards, hitting this big roping draw, and um, he moved away when I was about 15. Got my next coach, who was Craig Bonney, who he sort of refined me even more. He was the head pro at Warnable also, and you know, got me hitting it a bit straighter, but still had the big draw. It wasn't actually until I played the Korean Tour in 2005, so my, uh, 2006, my sec- first year as a pro, that I went back to a fade just to try and get a bit of control. Can we go back a little bit because you mentioned big draw and at 15 years old, you also mentioned the big kind of loopy slinging draw, but you didn't mention when you got really good. Can we go back to when you realized you were really good? Was there there an event? Was there a round of golf where you you kind of surprised yourself? I won the, the club championships when I was 13, which is four rounds of stroke play. So I won that when I was 13 and then I thought, you know, that's pretty good, but was it a fluke? I knew I had talent, but, you know, you never know. You know, you see the guys play on TV and you never see them miss a shot. They only show the, the guys who are playing the best. And of those guys, they only show their best shots. So it's a bit of a, um, a skewed reality, I guess, that you, that you have. And you, you, I didn't realize that they miss shots and miss plenty of shots. But probably when I was about 16, I started. that's when I started traveling up to Melbourne fairly frequently, 15 or 16, and then winning sort of a lot of those events. And that's when I thought, well, these might be, you know, I knew I was one of the best in the state, but then you don't know how the guys are. You hear about, you know, the Stephen Bowditch or Rick Kulax or Michael Sim. You hear about those guys and then I guess, you know, you're talking about them. They're, they're from Queensland and Western Australia, but I guess they're probably talking about me being the Victorian. So it was, um, yeah, it was probably about 16 years old. And then, you know, then you get come out of junior golf, you know, you come from winning everything and get in, playing amongst the men and getting your butt kicked. And that's when I really started to develop because I was playing against people who were a lot better than me. And I feel like that's how you learn is learn from the guys you're playing with, the guys who are winning. If you miss a cut, go out and watch the leaders. And that's when I really started to develop new shots. That's when I went into the Victorian Institute of Sport. So Dennis McDade started coaching me just before my 18th birthday. So I was in the Institute of Sport for three years. And then, you know, we used to travel around a lot playing amateur events. Probably got thrown in the deep end a little bit. It was a bit, I guess it was, I knew it was going to take time. But when I first went into the Institute of Sport, I thought, geez, I'm not good enough. <laughs> right. um, getting my butt kicked every week. But then, you know, you, you mature a little bit and pick up the shots you need and the mental toughness and all that. And, the, and then I guess you, you put all those together eventually and you start winning those. Another big part of that early development that we always try to understand, Mark, is what the parenting support looks like during that developmental years and that developmental process. And I'm glad you brought up that club championship at 13 because from our research, you left out a part that your dad was a, was he a multiple club champion? Had he won it a few times? Yeah, he's won about seven times, I think. And you were paired with him and his 13-year-old son son beat him. So we always ask like, hey, after golf tournaments, what did the ride home sound like from dad or from mom? How did they provide that support? But to me, I'm laughing as I'm reading that is that's a really interesting car ride home is I'm sure it's a a strange mix of pride that his 13-year-old won and maybe some disappointment that he just got beat by a 13-year-old in the club championship. So give us an idea of what that kind of support looked like typically. And I'm, I'm especially interested in what that ride home sounded like. Yeah, so the good thing about that day was that because it was stroke play, Dad actually didn't finish second. 
So um, <laughs> if he had finished second, I might have questioned it. <laughs> yeah. um, but he'd, he'd only won one club championship at that point, I think, and it was in it was in 1988. I remember it, and my first one was in 1997. Tiger Woods won the Masters. You know, that's pretty inspiring for for a junior golfer. But it was a it was a, again a really windy day. I was a few back coming in, and actually the guy who I ended up beating double bogeyed the last hole to lose by a shot, which. I don't like saying this, but he was kind of renowned for not quite being able to finish it. He'd finished second a lot of times. And I remember dad said to me on about the 16th hole, he's like, just finish it out, mate. You know, you never know what might happen. I think he knew what was going on behind and who, who was behind me. <laughs> yeah, so we, we finished. We watched him sort of, you know, stuff up the last hole. I win. We actually lived across the road from the second tee. So it was a probably a two-minute car ride home, but it was okay. a lot of um, – actually, mum probably drove us all home, to be honest, or we walked. <laughs> um, I'm sure dad would have had a few beers to celebrate. <laughs> I love um, it. I mean, dad was always really supportive. I think it's very important for a parent to let your kids make mistakes. I actually learned a lot from my dad. I never had to worry about what he would say if I played bad. He was just always supportive. You know, if I wanted to go for a green in two and there was tea tree everywhere, tea tree is like a, I guess, a non-spiky gauze bush. You know, you hit it in there and you lose your ball. But I, was, I still am a very aggressive player, but he would let me make the mistakes to try and learn from them. I actually caddied for my son, Harvey, in his first ever US Kids Golf Tournament the other day. And um, it was pretty cool. Like, it reminded me a lot of when I was a kid. I remember there was one hole, it was a par four, but water about 150 yards off the tee and there's a slither of fairway left of the water that's about four yards wide. I'm like, right, mate, what are you going to hit here? And he goes, I'm hitting driver. I'm like, it'll probably get to the water. He goes, yeah, I'm going to hit it on that bit of fairway over there. I'm like, all right, let's see it. <laughs> so he sends it straight into the water. And, um, you know, they're the lessons that you've got to learn, I guess. The thing that I found very difficult on that day, and this is getting away from where we were, but the th thing that I found difficult on that day was, you know, you see parents that are teeing their, ball, their kids' balls up for them on the tee and lining the, the line up on the green on, the, on their ball. I think my dad, he let me do everything myself. You know, if I wanted to put my ball on the tee, on the third tee, and there was a chunk of mud on it, he'd let me do it and I'd learn from it. You know, I think that's, I just think it's so important to just let the kids go, let them have fun. That's what dad let me do. You know, if we ever went to the golf course, whether it was after work, he never wanted to go because he was so exhausted from laying bricks all day. But he'd always take me out there. And if I was sick of it after four holes, he'd be like, all right, well, let's go home then. And we'd walk in and we'd go home. I was never out there when I didn't want to be out there. I think that's a really good bit of advice. And probably the main thing that I've learned from him is if your kids are ever anywhere they don't want to be, and that's something you want them to love for the rest of their life, yeah, just go yeah. home make sure it's always fun. You mentioned before, maybe three or four minutes ago, learning from those around you. And then I was curious when you talked about entering the VIS and meeting Dennis and him becoming your coach about who else you were around that helped you grow because you were getting beaten day in, day out. And then the attitude that maybe you would learn through lessons from mum and dad and lessons from growing up in a world-class family that kind of shaped your character young that you used to not lose hope and not lose sight of the big picture, which is you becoming the best version of yourself in those VIS years. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what is the best way to go about it is try and become the best version of yourself, not someone else. So Dennis was obviously a big influence in my career, still is. He was just over here. He left three weeks ago. 
just got out of hotel quarantine, so he did that <laughs> for me. Actually, Marcus Fraser, he mm-hmm. played on the European Tour for a long yeah. time, and he was Dennis was coaching him. He still is coaching him too, actually. But Fraser would go away, and he'd be winning, you know, all the the big national trial events in Australia, and was, you know, he, he was the gun. And we would come back and we'd practice with him. And I always thought, you know, I feel like I'm every bit as good as you. Like, I know you do things better than me. Like, you do certain things a lot better than me. But I feel like if I can improve this and this and, and that, I can beat you. And actually, I was, was nearing the end of my second year in the VIS after not a whole lot of success in the first couple of years. I, um, I went head-to-head with Fraze and it was the Rich River Classic. I remember that. A 72-hole amateur tournament in Australia. And I shot 65 in the last round and beat him by a couple of shots. And that was when my amateur career, that's when it started jumping ahead because then I had the belief. I learned a couple of new shots that week. I, I was talking about going from hitting the big draws. There was a couple of holes on that golf course where you had to squeeze a little cut into the fairway. Right. And I was not comfortable doing that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I learned that shot that week and piped it down that hole four days in a row. And it was a par five. And I remember, I, I don't know the scores, but I remember it was, I birdied it more often than I didn't. And I remember thinking, all right, that this is, this is what I've got to do. I've got to play the right shot at the right time, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. I've actually learned a lot of that off Tiger Woods as well in the more recent years. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what shot he has to hit or is whatever shot is called for, he hits. No matter the situation, whether he's on the cut line and there's front right pin and if it calls for a baby cut, he'll do it. If it calls for a draw to a back left pin with trouble around, he'll do it, whether he's comfortable or not. And I've learned a lot of that from him, watching him. He's playing the right shot at the right time. You don't, you know, I know everyone's got a stock shot and needs to have a stock shot, but you also need to know when to play that shot and when not to. So going back to that, it was probably Marcus Fraser in the early years. And then I've got other people that have really helped me in the, in the latter years. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Tyless, and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons, Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series, the engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour, delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. Clearly, you were a talented player in the early years, the late teenage years, and then starting out as a professional. Oftentimes, a question we get asked by parents and players alike that are in those adolescent years developing their skills is what to do to get better. So talent is one, but work is another thing. How would you qualify or define how you got better at your game? Were you a player? Were you a ball beater? And did that change when you went to the VIS? No, it didn't change, but I knew that I, I was always a player. I used to hate being on the range because at Warnerby you'd have to go pick up your own balls. Right. And with it blowing 60 kilometers an hour across the range, your balls were never tightly bunched. <laughs> they were everywhere. Um, so I liked going, yeah. So I liked going out on the course. You know, there was a, a couple of mates that I used to play with and they were both pretty good and we'd go out and we'd you know play the holes and then we'd chip around because there's no one playing golf you know in the middle of winter in Warrnambool when it's 50 degrees Fahrenheit and you know blowing a hurricane and 
a lot of the time with a misty rain, we'd go out there and there was no one on the course. So we could play the hole. We'd play the hole. Then we'd have chipping comps around the green for 10 minutes. And then we'd go play the next hole and do the same thing. So we're always doing that. When I went to the VIS, there was a few things that were in my swing that Dennis didn't like. He didn't have a template or anything like that. He just wanted me to be the best version of myself. So we worked on that and I played terribly for the first... I mean, it was very frustrating the first year. Was there a conversation that you and Dennis had on the front end that said, hey, Mark, this is yeah. what needs to happen and you may not be good for a period of time? Yes. Yeah. He's, he said, you know, you have to... He explained he's, he's a very good coach. And I say coach because he's not a swing teacher. He's not a teacher. He's not a swing teacher. He's a coach. And he said, you know, golf is a lot like life. There's going to be ups and downs. A lot of the time, it's going to be tough, but you've got to look what's at the end of the tunnel and sometimes not always you have to get worse to get better and everything i tell you you don't have to do everything you pick the stuff out that you think are going to work for you so if he tells me six things still which he he doesn't anymore but you know he would tell me six different things and i might pick one of them and i'm like i I understand this and i feel like that's gonna make me better on a shorter timeline Mm -hmm. and then we can work on maybe a couple of those other five things a little bit down the track so i didn't have to go like big hollows so, I mean, the stuff we worked on then, they're still my bad habits now, 20 years later, which is frustrating, but it's good because I know what's wrong. Right. Most of the time I can self, self-diagnose. So I was probably, you know, I spent a lot of time on the range um, my first two years in there. Then the last couple of years or the last year I was in there, I could really concentrate on playing. Everything was where it was at, where, where we wanted it to be. I could hit the shots, but I had all the shots. And then I could con- really concentrate on playing, get to mm-hmm. a golf course and, or a tournament and not have any swing thoughts in my head, which is still the way I play my best golf. This year, I mean, I've, I've struggled the, since the break and um, I just got away from what I always did. I forgot that, well, I didn't forget. I, when you're not playing well, you think too much. And I do not play my best golf when I'm thinking. So he actually came over at the Zozo in California and saw me. And the first day I actually played pretty well that I was doing drills before my tee shots, which I never do drills because mm-hmm. that's obviously thinking about your swing. And so he, he pulled me off the course on, or not off the course, but after the second round, I walked off the course and I was pretty, sh- yeah. not shattered, but pretty pissed off and, you know, dejected. And he's like, right, we're going to the range. <laughs> not to work on your swing. I was going to say stuff, let's go have a beer. Um, <laughs> and, um, exactly. <laughs> But uh, he's like, no, we're going now. It's going to take 10 minutes. We went over there. And then since then, I've been playing a lot better. It was just what I was doing going into the ball. Because he's been with me that long, as you would know with Jordan, you know, you, you can diagnose it pretty quick. Pretty quick, yeah. Um, Pick up on things. What, yeah, was so, it, what was it specifically that you were doing going into the ball that, that has changed things since? I was working on my balance. My balance, if, if my balance is good, right to left foot, front to back, you know, heel mm-hmm. to toes, generally I'm, I'm pretty good. But I was working on that. So I was getting my balance and my stance width good and then going into the ball, which was getting me standing way too far away from the ball. So I was standing, you know, two to three inches further away than what I normally do, which is a big, Massive big difference. difference. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, you know, he just told me, look, you don't look like you out there. So he wanted me to walk into the ball looking at the target and everything be external because I always let the, the conditions or the, or the, you know, where the pin is or the shot I've got to hit dictate my swing. And I was hitting way too many straight shots because I was, had no idea where the ball was going. Right. <laughs> so I thought, all right, I've hit a straight shot. At least it shouldn't go too far offline, but then you can miss it left and right. 
So he's like, all right, tomorrow I want you to hit some shots. I want you to hit draws. I want you to hit fades. I don't want you to hit any straight shots, but I want you to look at the target when you're walking into the ball and then get into it. And straight away, I moved closer to the ball. I looked comfortable over the ball. I felt like me. And the results weren't quite there those two days, but the last two rounds of that tournament. But I felt like me over the ball. And I actually left that tournament very optimistic about the Masters, even though I'd played horribly for the five months or whatever it was beforehand. But that conversation, that 10-minute conversation on the range about not even about my swing, about how I walk into the golf ball. Yeah, and what you're um, tuning into, right? External, the shot. Exactly. The, the, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so... I don't know how much you've watched me on the golf course, but I, I generally hit some pretty big shapes. Like mm-hmm. if there's a left hand, I like to start it in the middle of the green, work it towards the pin, knowing that I'm not going to overhook it or not going to overcut it if I cut it towards a pin. So, But I was finding myself aiming at the middle of the green and hitting a straight shot and having, even if I hit a good shot, I would have a 25 footer, which is not good if you're, playing for money <laughs> right and i reckon a lot i have watched you a, a good amount and i love watching you because you're an artistic shot maker and that's the part of the game that i appreciate the most versus the surgical and this is not to disparage henrik because i love henrik and he knows that henrik stenson but it's like hit it as high and as straight as i possibly can and, and take dead aim essentially a fantastic player clearly but the shot making side of the game is the game the side of the game that i grew up on when i grew up playing golf and it, it clearly makes sense given growing up in one and describing the conditions that day in day out you were exposed to you had to create a a wide arsenal of tools in your toolbox didn't you so how does that then equip you to i mean clearly i think the, the question itself has already found its answer in what i just said and what you just described but your performance at augusta and your performance at the open championship where you've been in contention you almost won both of them yeah, it's what I enjoy. The difficulty? The difficulty, The I think more than anything, even is the imagination that's required. The opens that I've done well in have been very windy. You know, some years you have it calm there, but the ones I've done well at have been quite windy. I like the challenge of, of crosswinds when you have to hit a 30-yard hook to have the ball fly straight. And then, so I think what is in common, what Augusta National and the open courses have in common is it doesn't really matter what the ball does through the air. It's how you have to control it when it hits the ground. So Augusta, the greens are very hard, very fast. So a lot of the time you're aiming to at a slope to you're hitting a shape, like it might be a 10-yard fade. Say if you're playing 14 at Augusta, you might hit a 10-yard fade into a slope that's 20 yards left of the pin, try and land it on that slope with the left to right spin to get it to that front right pin, which you can't get at if you go straight at it, which is difficult because that green's 40 yards wide and you're aiming nearly off the left edge of the green when the pin's, you know, way right. But so it looks like you're aiming further away than what you are. But if you know where you're actually trying to land it and what the green is like, you can control it on the green. So I enjoy that and I enjoy the precision that's required there. If you miss a shot there, you're punished, particularly on the second shots. And the British Open's the same. You know, you've, you've got to control your ball when it hits the ground because if you don't have control of that, you're going to end up in those pop bunkers, which are basically like a, a red hazard in the middle of the fairway. So, yeah, I, I enjoy that, the, the strategic factor of both of them. You know, you're looking at where the pin is when you're up, before you hit your tee shot to see not only what side of the fairway but how far you want in. You know, like on, on the third at Augusta, you know, if the pin's on the left there, you probably want to lay back so you can have a full shot in and, again, hit a draw to the middle of the green and spin it down. Or if the pin's back right, you can rip it up in front of the green and just chip it up the green and it's quite a simple pitch shot. 
you're giving away a lot of your Augusta natural secrets yeah, right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but it's, uh, I just love the, the strategic nature of, of both of them. I haven't done as well at, at US Opens or, or PGAs. I think partly because you have to drive it very straight there. I'm not the straightest driver in the world. And growing up in Australia, still, like I've been over here for 13 years in America, I still find it very challenging to hit out of that long rough around the greens. It's, I mean, I've worked, I've put thousands of hours into it, and it's still probably the hardest part of the game for me. I want to go go back to the the kind of chronology of your career here. We we talked about developing, we talked about VIS, and I want to talk about the first few years on tour because you won Rookie of the Year, you made it to the playoffs those those first three years. So obviously, it was a really solid start to your career. But then in 2012, just looking at the World Golf Rankings and just kind of the chart, it looks like it was the time that you really broke through. You got your first win, and then really since then, there's been this steady rise up the World Rankings. And so when you see that kind of that rise in performance as a coach, you're curious. You know, what did you learn those first three years, and what skills got better? to support that continuous rise. And you just mentioned driving right there, not being necessarily the strength, but looking at the statistical improvements kind of through your career, putting and driving really started to improve quite a bit in 2013. So I guess I'm answering that question for you, but uh, or that would be my take at least. But how do you see it as, as kind of the reason for or the cause of that breakthrough and rise in performance starting maybe 2012, 2013? Yeah, so like you said, I think mostly putting, but as far as game-wise, I, th- I feel like I've, been, I've improved everything. My iron play has gotten better. My putting has definitely gotten better. We actually built a new house in 2015, and I put a, there's a putting green in the other room, in the room over the garage, and I've never been a big practicer, you know, beater of balls or anything on weeks off. I used to drop my golf clubs at the garage when I'd get home and pick them up on the way out. I can't do that anymore. I would like to, but I, I need to do some work when I'm home on weeks off. But um, I feel like the putting is a big one. But I think more than anything, it's feeling comfortable on the big stage. I love playing in front of big crowds and having the pressure and having to pull off a shot that's worth, you know, that means something. And also when I started to play better, I could then pick the courses that I liked. I wasn't just playing the courses that, or the, the tournaments that I, I was getting into because I'd been out there a few years. I was like, all right, I don't like that place or I love that golf course, but I don't play well there. And I think I just learned to manage my schedule better. You know, I was playing the events that I like and I play well at. And rather than going to a golf course that I didn't particularly love or play well at and just beat myself up all week, because when you're playing bad, you, it's mentally taxing. Or not even play bad, just not having you're the rounds right? that you want. Yeah, exactly. Have those weeks off and go to the tournaments that you like fresh. So a lot of my wins have come off two weeks off when I've barely touched a golf club. Are there any hard and fast rules that you have on I'll play this many weeks in a row or this is what I need from a rest and recovery standpoint when you're managing that schedule? So I started having back issues in 2015. I've got four bulging discs in my lower back, all different discs. Um, (laughs) So I've had to manage that. But my only rule is I won't spend more than two weeks away from my kids. And then I won't play more than four weeks in a row. So I'll say I've got two. I don't really like playing four in a row, but I will if I love all the tournaments. But the two weeks away from my kids, if I'm by the, that third week, I'm grumpy. And I just, you know, when, you, when you're not happy off the golf course or not happy in general, and for me, that's pretty much only when I'm, you know, missing them or my wife. So 
I'd prefer to not. Go home. They're, they're happier, you know, because if I'm away for three weeks in that third week, the kids are getting cranky too. And then that puts a stress on my wife. And if she's not happy, well, you know, happy wife, happy life. So <laughs> yeah, right. it's very true. So I'd much prefer to be happy and play 20 events a year. I play more than that. I normally play about 23 or 4, 25, but I'd rather be happy and play a few less events than grind it out every single, you know, what feels like every week and just not be happy on the golf course. Right. Can we pull on the mindset piece a little bit or discuss the mindset piece a little bit? And let me give you three data points. Your first, I guess it was nationwide uh, win out in Midland where you won by something like 65 shots, didn't you? (laughs) And then um, at the Travelers, you shot 62 in the final round and came from behind, going low again. And then the Open Championship, what did you do on the weekend there? Shot 63, 65 or something and got into the playoff right after only, after only just making the cut. So oftentimes we get into these conversations with developing players that's trying to understand why, coach, I got it going low and then I just wanted to get into the clubhouse, right? Or I get close to winning a tournament and then I, I wilted like your competitor back in the club championship when you're 13 years old. Is there something that you've learned or something that you think you can do that you could teach someone else about how to deal with those situations better, whether it's going low or winning. So like I was I was talking about before that golf is very similar to life. You know, life you've got to enjoy the good days and make the most of them. Golf's the same. You don't always have your best golf. So on those days when you do have it, you've got to take advantage of it. If you're feeling good, keep aiming at those pins. <laughs> Cause if on those days, if you do happen to miss the green, you're probably gonna get it up and down or chip it in. So if I'm ever, you know, seven, eight under through nine holes, my mindset is, all right, this is one of those good days. Let's try and do the same on the back nine. I'm not trying to get in and shoot 64 or five. I want to shoot a real, real low one. And I think, you know, you just got to take advantage of it. You know, like the Formula One drivers, when their car's running well, you know, you, you don't just try and steer it to the finish line. You, you got to try and win the race. And that's what it's all about. Golf tournaments, you know winning that race and hopefully being able to enjoy that uh, that celebration at the end of the week, which, you know, you obviously you don't want to think about that while you're playing golf, but the lowest score wins. And if you can put a big dent in, in a real low score, that's a, that's a, takes you a long way towards it. Probably my most satisfying win was at, uh, at the BMW because the, the, year bef- the week before, actually, I had a, in Boston, I had a two-shot lead going into the back nine. And I won't say I choked, but I, I did not play good golf on that back nine. I played terrible golf and I ended up finishing third, sort of threw away the lead, I think. To JT and Jordan, yeah. JT won, Jordan finished second, I believe. But that was very frustrating. And then I had to go straight to um, the BMW the next week and um, I shot 62, I believe it was in, in the first round. And I thought, geez, well, I've got to just try and get as far ahead as I can. So if that happens again, I'm that far in front, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, <laughs> So I ended up winning that tournament by five. So that was probably my most satisfying win because, and probably the only sleepless night I've had before a golf tournament because I had a five-shot lead going into the last round, knowing what had happened the week before. I'm like, you know, you just you don't have to do anything, but I had to win that tournament for myself, and that was probably the biggest celebration I've ever had after a tournament. <laughs> I love it. The last time I was seven or eight under three nine holes was a few weeks ago, and then what happened is I woke up. Um, so we can so we can move beyond that. How much do you lean on Matt Kelly, your caddy, in those situations? How much does he help? Not only tactically, like here's the number and here's the club that I think it is, but because inside the relationship of a world-class golfer that's lived in the top 20 in the world for a long time now and and their caddy, most people don't have a window to that other than the 
the, the couple of shots from, or if you're in the leading groups, the mini shots where you overhear conversations, but you don't really hit, hear the nitty gritty of those conversations. So can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, so uh, me and Maddie have been friends. We, he grew up in Warrnambool also. We've known each other since we were 12 years old. Caddies are very, very important in every situation, but at different times in that situation. Mm-hmm. So when you're playing poorly, for me, it's very important that he make, you know, we get the right number, get the right club, talk it out, hit the shot. When I'm playing well, it's his job to get my mind off the golf tournament between shots and basically just talk shit, you know, for the two minutes between shots, get my mind completely off it, conserve energy, and then get to the ball. He doesn't have to say much around the ball. He'll tell me the number. I pick a club. I, I pick the shot. You yeah. know, if you're in that... Locked. <laughs> if you're locked in, he just needs to make sure the number's right and he's golden. But it's when, you know, when things start to go pear-shaped in that situation, you know, that's when he's, you know, got to let you know, all right, slow down a bit, just take some deep breaths or whatever it might be. And I think a lot of caddying also is knowing when to say something and when not to say something. And because we, yeah, there is an art to it. And we've, I mean, we've been together so long that um, he's, he's gotten very good at that. You know, early on, you know, again, he, he, he learned a lot early on. I was the first player, I'm the only player he's ever caddied for. So, you know, he'd be like, oh, you know, there's a bit of trouble over there on the right. Don't hit it there. And that's the last thing you want to hear. It's like driving down the freeway and, or a single, a, a narrow two lane road and, you know, the passenger in his car says, oh, there's a truck coming towards you. Don't run into it. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you just want to look in your lane and, and drive there. It's the same as golf. You want to look at where you want to hit it and hit it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to be looking at all the, you know, the bunkers or the trees or the water or whatever it might be. So we've had a really good partnership. But, yeah, a, a lot of it is knowing when to talk, when not to talk, and just basically distractions. It's, mm-hmm. you know, like he's a distraction when I'm playing well to not think about whether you're one back or one ahead or whatever it might be. You've described a lot of really, really kind of important mindset keys for you. And and I think that what comes clear having these conversations with really good players is there's a really good understanding of what their best performing self kind of looks like and feels like. Like they have that defined in their mind of, hey, when I'm at my best, this is what I am. And so then the trick becomes, how do we get into that state more often? And we try to do this for our players. I'm curious if you have anything like this. Is there anything that you can be doing whether the morning of an event, whether it's just Monday through Wednesday of event that prime yourself steps that you can take like tangible action. Like when I do this, I'm much more likely to, to be in this best performing self when I step on the first tee. Is there any tricks, anything that you have that you do that will increase the likelihood that that happens, that the best performing mark shows up on the first tee? Yeah, there's definitely a few things that I do, you know, working on mostly putting. If I have a good putting week, you know you're going to have a, a decent week no matter how you hit it. So I do, I've got some drills that I do on the putting green. It may not look like they're drills when I'm doing them. I don't have gadgets out there or anything. What specific? What, what you you yeah. can share, yeah. So the way I read putts is I'll pick something that's right next to the hole. Say if it's going to break a foot, I'll look at something a foot right of the hole and hit a dead straight putt at that, which sounds really simple. So I mostly practice probably 70% of my practice putting is a dead straight putt, making sure I'm hitting my line with no string line or no chalk line or anything like that. Just I pick a dead straight six footer and just make it as many times as I want, you know, just keeping it in, keep seeing it, get, just seeing the ball go in the hole. So then I know that, all right, if I hit my line, you know, the hole's what, four inches wide, there's a good chance it's going to get in the way and the ball's going to go in. That's probably more mindset than, than anything. So that's one thing. Uh, and just, you know, I do a thing called nine ball drill. So it's what, you know, I, 
don't know, I'm sure you, you guys know what it is, but it's when you hit a high medium, low draw, high medium, low straight, and then a, you know the same with a fade. And you basically work out what's working that week because your swing's not exactly the same every week. So if you've got the medium fade going real well and you're not feeling the high draw, well, don't hit it on the course yeah, it uh, it's not be. working on the range it's probably not going to work on the course and then you know just just simple stuff like working around the greens like always because the grasses are different every week every day you know if it's a little bit of dew on it if it's dry if, you know if it's drying out during the week the grass might be really healthy and lush early in the week and then it dries out so it changes day to day so it's working out how the ball is going to react out of that certain lies with different clubs and working out what's going to work best in what situation and picking the right shot so that's they're probably the big things for me and obviously you know my you have to strike the ball well also but um that's mostly it i guess Got yeah it. now's the time of year that you might sit down and start to reflect on things to work on in the few weeks that you might have off before the restart and as the expression goes it's hard to read the label when you're inside the bottle so uh, how do you get outside the bottle what stats are you looking at and what uh as you look forward to whether the restarts in sony or actually no the restart's going to be at uh, toc right so yeah yeah so first yeah. week in first week in january are there, are there any things that you're concentrating on whether it's in the next couple of weeks or uh, maybe for the first quarter of the year that you're um identifying that you haven't already described there is i'm six to ten foot putting um, i need to lift that whole percentage a little bit to get myself where I, where I, back to where i want to be you know obviously you always want to hit more fairways and and, and hit it further but i think a, a few extra yards off the tee will be pretty beneficial and i think it's very doable i generally don't try and hit it too hard off the tee i think if i can just you know especially with my back and i use a quite a soft ball as well because i like the that spin around the greens i love that so i might i think i'm going to go to a tiny bit firmer ball that's well, it's going to play firmer off the tee but still be same off around the greens which would be mm -hmm. nice yeah so a few extra yards off the tee and then you know that stuff out of the rough that we we're talking about you know the, the chipping out of the rough inside 30 yards is a place where i can really improve on but yeah for the three weeks up until maui i'm actually just trying to get a little bit fitter and i feel like that'll help me not only in golf but in everything else as well how does how does leishman lager uh, impact on that fitness goal <laughs> yeah i know yeah we've, uh, we've actually just brought out a mid-strength so i might have to just have the mid-strengths a few less calories <laughs> hopefully i'll drink them. more of them yeah <laughs> no in the, you, mentioned, you, oh, go ahead. you mentioned distance you mentioned distance there and it's a hot topic it's a conversation that we're a lot of us are having more often than we ever have. If you were rules are for the day, is there any action that you would take on the distance situation? Obviously you're taking actions as a player to make sure that you're hitting it farther, but what's your stance on, on what you would do if it were up to you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm not talking huge, huge gains. I'm talking, hopefully I can gain five yards. I would make the driver head smaller. I wouldn't change the ball at all. I would just make the driver head smaller because then you've actually got to hit the middle of the club. And I feel like if you swing really hard with a small head and you can hit the middle of the club, go for your life. I mean, you deserve that advantage, really. I mean, some guys are great putters. Some guys have got awesome short games and some guys are vomit off the tee. So everyone has their area of expertise i just think you could make that a little bit tougher by you wouldn't have to take it you know you don't have to take it back 30 years or anything to the tailor-made sure. burner or you know the anything like that but even just like the not even to the warbird days like you know even to that that they still look small or the 975d something like that waste um, them, they? yeah they look pretty small so um that's all i'd do 
you've been great with your time. I want to finish here if it's okay with a couple of more quick hit questions. So you can keep your responses as brief as, as you want confidence, what adds to it and what takes away from it? Success. Success adds to it and lack of success takes away from it. Pretty much. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, they're, they're quick hit questions. (laughs) Superstitions. Any that you uh, hold on to? No, not really. I have a coffee before every round. That's about (laughs) it. I mean, that's just, yeah. Funny, actually, I, I was just before the Travelers when I won it in 2012, I was playing really good in afternoon rounds and poorly in morning rounds. And, you know, morning rounds are normally uh, should have a better score, should be easier, smoother greens, softer greens. Less wind. Less wind. The only difference was I was I saw a few of the guys having coffees in the morning and I started that week. I'm like, oh, I'll try and have a coffee in the morning before I play. So since then, I've had a coffee every morning before I play. Is there is there going to be a, a line of coffee beans that have the Leishman brand as well then? Jeez, I don't know about that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know much about coffee beans, but uh, I, know, I know a decent amount about beer. Well, you're an Aussie. You should know a lot about beer, yeah, a decent amount exactly. about beer. What is, what is your favorite beer back in Australia? I used to drink Carlton Dry. Not a VD guy. If I'm home, well, it knocks the crap out of me. It oh, gives okay. you the worst hangover. You have three of them and you got to hang out. I, I didn't have that experience growing up. And my dad was in the same kind of, uh, he was a carpenter, so tradesman. And, and yeah. VB yeah, was, was the beer drank, and tradesman. Yeah, he drank VB. Yeah. VB, Carlton Draft in dad's fridge. But we've actually got the Leish, Leishman Lager in Australia now as well, which is a mid-strength. So Beautiful. In my fridge at home is, is Carlton Dry and Leishman Lager. You get done with a round or a tournament and you scan a leaderboard. Who do you take a great pleasure in beating? And this is a, this is a kind of a fun question. Is there one name you look at and like, yeah, I got him. So Cameron Smith. <laughs> okay. really good friends. I yeah. love it. He's such <laughs> he a good loves beating me. I love beating him. <laughs> right. I hear you. Hey, what's the worst strategy mistake that you see even on the PGA Tour? We, we have this idea that the, obviously you guys have reached a level where there's not a whole lot of mistakes. So this is a relative question, but is there something that you see out on tour where you're like, man, I don't know what that guy's doing. Not, you don't have to name a name, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, you can, or you can if you want. Yeah, I think... The one that I see a lot is people looking in my golf bag when, you know, on par threes. I hit my clubs, my irons. Like, I mean, I can, if I want to, I can hit a nine iron 180 yards. The people look in my golf bag and see I'm in a nine iron. The reason I do that is because I deal off the club at impact and, you know, hands forward, whatever. But people look in my bag and they're like, guys oh, hit nine iron. They play a nine iron and, me and Maddie always give it, give each other a bit of an elbow in the in the ribs, and we're like, we've got another victim here, and they'll hit, hit a nine iron and it lands twenty yards short of the green. Um, so yeah, probably that because everyone knows how far they well on at PGA Tour level, everyone knows how far they hit each of their irons, each of their wedges. You know, they don't look in each other's bag on par four second shots. I think you know you can work that out yourself. Yeah, I think that's a pretty big mistake that a lot of guys make. Pretty much everyone makes actually. I do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, don't do that. Yeah. Mark, we can't thank you enough for your time. I know our listeners are going to really appreciate the insights and the conversation and getting to know you better. But in close, to get to know you better, you're more than just a professional golfer that plays in the world stage and this has lived in the top 20 in the world. You've got more interest than that. So where can people find out more about your foundation, about any sponsor that you want to give a shout out to and Leishman Lager? Well, Leishman Lagers in Australia is leishmanlager.com.au. Over here, it's through Back Bay Brewing in Virginia mm-hmm. Beach. And then the foundation is, um, so my wife got very sick about five and a half years ago with sepsis. So we're trying to, we help a lot of families. We've helped about 8,000 families in the last five years with medical bills and, and all that sort of thing. But the big thing with 
sepsis is if you know the symptoms, it's very treatable. If you can catch the symptoms early and you know, and you can be like, all right, I've got elevated heart rate, my blood pressure is high, I'm heart, you know, flu-like symptoms, there's a good chance you've got that and you can get it from any infection. So if you know the symptoms, it's very, very treatable. If you don't know the symptoms, for every hour that goes by, your chance of dying goes up 8%. Mm-hmm. So if you leave it, if you just go to bed and think, oh, I'll go to the doctor in the morning, there's a good chance you'll die in your sleep. So not to scare everyone, but knowing the symptoms of that is unbelievably important. It kills 270,000 Americans every year. It's a terrible thing. I mean, I've seen it all. Well, we were told that Audrey was going to die. So I pretty much saw it. You know, we had a close family friend here. I I work with a colleague here in North Texas. This is just kind of whether it stays in or not, uh, doesn't matter. But just to kind of of put it in perspective, a professional colleague of mine who happens happens to be Australian, his name was Nick Griffin. Uh, This is maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago now. His wife also had the same situation. She got an infection and has a very, very high pain tolerance. And she was in hospital for a gosh maybe two, two and a half months and ended up losing both hands and both feet. So yeah. amputated at, um, at, at the extremities and she's still living a, a, a healthy life. But to your point, that early catch uh, or early noticing the symptoms and early treatment is most important. And it can come from any infection. I mean, you get a cut on your finger, you can get it from that. So, yeah. so beginning again uh, foundation, we can... Uh, beginning again foundation.com, yeah. Just jump on and or just Google the symptoms of sepsis, just so you know them. Beautiful. Particularly if you got daughters. Beautiful, mate. Thank you yeah. very much for your time, and we'll uh, we'll continue to cheer you on and look forward to catching up and uh, maybe sharing a beer with you down the road. Yeah, thanks, Cam. Thanks, Corey. Good chatting. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Yeah, awesome appreciate job. it, man. No worries. All right, see you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.